Hey, good morning, everyone. And for those gathering online, it's, uh, it's great to have you with us. So good, good to see you all. Um, we are, like Dave said, we're in a, a new series called The Way of Jesus. Uh, the Way of Jesus uh, is something that, that we at Tallgrass at the Well, uh, we, we exist to create community by inviting everyone into the Way of Jesus. So we want to, wanted to take some time to talk about what is the way of Jesus? What, is it, what does it mean to follow Jesus, to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus? And um, what does that look like in our everyday life? And so the way of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the way of the world. We're used to um, hoarding riches, uh, seeing people use strength and power uh, to maybe put down or oppress other people. We're used to mantras such as only the strong survive. And the way Jesus stands in stark contrast to that way of thinking and that way of living. Uh, it has a different outlook. It's where we don't need to cover our, up our weakness. We don't need to make excuses for our weaknesses. Uh, but we uh, embrace the way of Jesus by receiving the grace that's extended to us by him. As we follow him, as we get to know him, as we are even in touch more and more with our personal limitations and our personal weaknesses, we embrace God's strength to move in his power and in his way of being. So that's a, that's a huge overview uh, and, and maybe a kind of a top-level view of the way of Jesus. It's really getting in touch with our weakness and our own personal need for someone to extend grace to us. And as we do that, we're able to extend grace to others around us. To actually be, as you have probably heard the phrase, to be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to other people in this world. And so we've been looking through the, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, at the rhythms of Jesus, at the, at the way that he lived, the way that he interacted with other people. And specifically, we're looking at the book of Mark through the lens of spiritual rhythms that Jesus invites us to participate uh, in, in our lives today and in that way get to know him and be more like him. So let's open up. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. I also have it on the projection here. So Mark chapter 2, verse 13, we see this. I'm reading from the NIV. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake as a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. So you get the sense of like this, there's this immediate response from this invitation from Jesus. Uh, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's pause here. Let's, let's do a brief recap of what we talked about last week, because that's going to help us make sense of this immediate response by Levi to the invitation to come and follow Jesus. So Jesus is known and, and called oftentimes rabbi in the Gospels. And rabbi just means master teacher of the Torah or the law. Uh, we often see Jesus sitting, as a master teacher does, fielding questions about his teaching and asking questions in response to those questions. Well, you, you actually saw this, um, and, and I'll see this all throughout uh, the Gospels, but, but 
when he was questioned or when his disciples were questioned, he asked the question back, why does, the, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Is it not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick? So there's this kind of parrying with questions back and forth to delve deeper into the hearts and into the minds of those who are listening. And this was a, a tool of, of the rabbinical style of teaching, right? So He's an unusual rabbi, though, as many rabbis just itinerate or they travel around the country and anybody and everybody can follow him and kind of come and go. But he is unusual in that he invites people to follow him. He doesn't wait for them. He goes and gets them and he invites them. And in many ways, for the, the, those that respond or even those that are invited, these aren't the cream of the crop. These aren't the, the people that are studied in the law. They're not teachers themselves. They kind of flunked out of school and have gone and, and learned other trades, uh, uh, Levi also known as Matthew throughout the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew is named for him, uh, is a tax collector. So he's seen kind of as a sellout because he's working with the Romans to collect taxes from the Jews, and people just really don't like him at all. And so for people like Matthew, uh, it's a second chance at a way of living faithful to Torah, faithful to God, and following a rabbi that they, they flunked out on and didn't have the chance earlier on in life. Right, And so that's why we see him, uh, as, he, as the call is extended to Levi, he responds because he, he takes the opportunity that, that hasn't been given to him before. And it's this great honor to learn from an esteemed rabbi. So that's why we see him leaving his booth and going and following Jesus. Now, disciples or apprentices to Rabbi Jesus commit to three things in their life, and they set a model for us to emulate and then to pass on to other disciples or apprentices uh, in, in our lives. Those three things, and these are heavy, weighty commitments, but it's what we're called to if we follow Jesus. Those three things are being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what Jesus does. So apprenticeship, put that way, is clear and it's simple. It's not easy, and as I said last week, it takes a lifetime to learn mastery in these three areas of being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what Jesus does. But it's what we're all called to, and it's exactly why we're studying the rhythms and practices of Jesus to, to learn to be with Jesus, to learn to be like Jesus, and to do what he does. Okay? Again, Jesus was controversial, and he was under constant suspicion because the religious leaders of his day disagreed with his eating habits, which were significant in the first century ancient Near East. Who you ate with was really, really important. In this chapter of Mark, uh, there are three stories. We'll get to two of them. But the Pharisees basically don't like uh, what he eats, when he eats, and who he eats with. Basically, they're always watching who he eats. And Jesus... If you, if you see the practice of Jesus, he eats a lot, which I really super appreciate. Jesus is kind of a foodie, you know. He, like, invites him over, himself over to, to throw parties at people's houses where there's lots of food, and, and he gets to mingle and, and talk with and teach lots of different people. In Israel, who you ate with signified deep friendship and unity and even made way for reconciliation and strained relationships. For Jesus to eat with those he did, tax collectors, prostitutes, and other known sinners, was scandalous and has led some scholars to speculate that this was a major contributing factor to why Jesus died, why, why they condemned him to death. The Pharisees belonged to a, a strict religious sect that believed only this, this really um, strict interpretation of the law would lead to God's restorative blessing on the nation. And there was a belief that the Pharisees held, which is, explains kind of why they're going around and, 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 and 
scrupulous of everyone's behavior. They actually believe that every, if everyone practiced Torah perfectly for just one day, everything according to every jot and tittle of the law, that then God, that would trigger a series of events where the Messiah would come back, that, that all the enemies, including Rome, would be vanquished and, and their power thrown off of Israel, and it, they would reenter to this golden age. Which, so that explains why when Jesus is going around and eating with tax collectors like Matthew, who, who were seen as perpetually unclean because they, they had these daily dealings with the Romans, these Gentiles that were unclean, why would a rabbi sit with someone who's unclean if that rabbi agrees with us and should agree with us, the Pharisees thought, that the Messiah would come back? He, he certainly can't be anyone close to God if he's eating with these sinners, especially publicizing, inviting other people to come follow him, right? And so, they, in their minds, this actually invited further chastisement from God on their nation. This is why the Pharisees really didn't like Jesus and went beyond uh, them being some kind of legalist or, or just not liking sinners. It was because they were seeking the blessing of God on their nation, and they thought that Jesus was a sinner himself because of who he kept company with, and therefore God's blessing was being withheld. So this background helps us to understand this next interaction that Jesus has with those in broader society and their questions about the, who he eats with during his meals. In verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, if you remember, and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, again with a question, as a, as a learned rabbi does, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have been with them. Uh, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So we should acknowledge here that Jesus isn't actually fasting, even though that's our practice for today. Just a kind of a spoiler alert for later. This is a practice that, that we're going to invite you into implementing in your own life. But Jesus, in this instance, isn't fasting himself. And yet, we know that Jesus fasted. Jesus fasted often as he, as he prayed and, and sought God's presence and direction and guidance. But he's actually teaching on how to fast when he's no longer around. He says this. Um, well, and we should ask the question, is, is Jesus just saying, is the new always better than the old, right? Is, is he, has he fallen victim to what C.S. Lewis called chronological sobriety? Uh, our culture, you see this, where everybody's obsessed with youth rather than our elders. We're, we're uh, uh, obsessed with all the, the kind of new technology and new breakthroughs. And we, uh, and, and with those who have the kind of chronological snobbery, are obsessed with everything that's, uh, that is or about to happen. And we just like throw away the old traditions and the old rites and the old ways of thinking. Is, is Jesus saying we should do that? And in a word... Uh, no. Remember, uh, we follow a 2,000-year-old rabbi who is eternal. Like, he's old. He's old school, right? 
He passes on old traditions. Uh, The way of Jesus is grounded in these old traditions, these old practices that have been passed down to us from those that have gone on uh, before us. Now, it's not that everybody has always gotten everything right in in ages past, but the, the, the practices of our faith have been tested through time and handed down to us to take seriously, to take uh, intentional uh, attention and practice and energy putting towards that. Jesus is teaching us through the example of the wineskin here is that when God does a new thing, don't have your expectations wrapped so tightly around what he's done that you missed what he's about to do next. You can expect that when the new rubs against the old, that there's going to be heat, that there's going to be tension, and it's going to be uncomfortable, right? So in other words, the new wineskin and the new garment, we don't want to miss what God's about to do because we're so obsessed with what he's done, we hang on to it, we white-knuckle it, and say once and for for all, God is going to act in this way. And God may be up to something new. And he is. In every generation, God moves in a new and a unique way. If we have ears to hear, if we can pay attention to what he's saying to us now. Now, there are old truths that we hang on to. We hang on to the Gospels, the other epistles and and writings of the Bible. We hang close to, to the ways of Jesus. But we do so as a foundation for how God wants to encounter us in our generation and what he's about to do next. Okay? So, N.T. Wright, uh, in his commentary, Mark for Everyone, says this, The main times when the Jews of Jesus' day fasted were days that reminded them of the great disasters of old, like the time when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. Surely Jesus, as a devout Jew, would want to keep the holy days like that. No. Jesus was bringing the time of restoration, of new life, of the new start for which Israel had longed. Jesus was bringing into being the reality for which the temple had been one of the great advanced signposts, God's sovereign and saving presence in the midst of his people. This was a time for looking forwards to the great things God was beginning to do, not backwards to the time when Israel had been punished for her failures and infidelities. So Jews in Jesus' day were familiar with fasting of a way of mourning national tragedies and even averting, like calling a fast for an emergency situation to avert future ones. The prophet Joel instructed them to do such a thing during times of emergency. So in Joel chapter 2, starting verse 1 and then verse 12, says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. But too often, the act of fasting existed only on the surface level of the people of God's lives and didn't penetrate into who they were, so it never changed their behavior. They, they, they kept behaving the way that brought calamity on them and on their nation. Right? We all know how easy it is to think that there, there's an, a formula. If I do this amount of work, then God is surely going to respond in this way. We treat God kind of like some cosmic gumball machine. Right? We put a quarter in and then go, answer my prayers, please, exactly the way I expect them to. And how many of you know that leads to like, a lot of hurt and pain and, and um, uh, disillusionment, things like that. Maybe some cynicism mixed in there. We treat God this way like some kind of genie. 
And God says, I'm not beholden to your rules. I am the creator God. I make my own rules. What God wants is our heart to return to him. He's very clear in Joel. And then even next in Isaiah, Isaiah 58, verse three through, verses 3 through 8, it says this. He asks rhetorically, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth. If you fast in this way, if you fast and do the work of justice and mercy, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. So again, the, the, the Jews during the time of, of Joel and, and Isaiah treated God transactionally, and they were simultaneously neglecting the work of justice and mercy around them. And they were hoping their spirituality, that they could fast and make this big to-do about what they've given up to follow God or what they give up to, to get a prayer answered, that that would cover over their injustice, that that would cover over the, the, the way that they treat each other. And God said, I'm not answering that prayer. You can't live your life in that, in that fallen, broken, wicked way, throw some fasting on there and think I'm going to answer your prayers all, the, all of a sudden. Change your heart. Rend your heart. Bring it close to me, which will change your behavior, and then there will be a blessing that's extended to you. Get your heart right with each other, and then the blessing is extended to you. So what, in light of this, in the light of, uh, of the way that Jesus reorients towards fasting, through his teaching, how should we, as the people of God, fast? Because he, he says, when the bridegroom, he, he is the bridegroom, he's, he's the groom, right, in his analogy. When the groom's taken away, he says, then they will fast. Fasting is an expectation, so it's a regular rhythm and practice for our lives. So let's actually return to that original question that he posited as an answer, right? Mark 2, verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast? While he's with them. They cannot, so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So Jesus isn't negating the practice of fasting. Remember, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, not to set it aside. So there are practices of averting crisis, of, of wanting uh, uh, God to, like, coming together collectively to hear God, to repent, to set our hearts right to God. And so God, Jesus isn't setting those aside or negating that, but he is reorienting this practice of fasting so we can incorporate it in our life. And he uses this, this narrative example, this metaphor of this great feast. Jesus is inviting his apprentices to fast so they can be attuned to their deep desire to be connected to him. Um, so he imagines, he invites us to imagine this wedding party. How do you fast when there's a wedding celebration going on? Like the groom is there, right? The, the wedding party is there throwing a party. You don't fast at someone's wedding, you weirdos. Like you don't do that, he says. But there's a time where the groom will be taken away and it's that day and that hour, that age, the church age that we're in, that's when fasting will kick in. But it will be different. It, it will be about longing at the heart level to be reunited, reconnected with Jesus, right? 
It's one born out of a desire to be with God, to experience spiritual closeness and breakthrough in our lives. It's the kind of fast where anything we're praying to experience or see happen is an important motivator, but it's secondary to the longing to be close with Jesus and to experience his presence. The kind of closeness that the disciples experienced when they walked and talked with him. Through God's spirit, that kind of closeness is available to us who apprentice Jesus now in this age. Scott McKnight in his book called Fasting says this, At the very core of fasting is empathy with the divine or participation in God's perception of a sacred moment. When someone dies, God is grieved. When someone sins, particularly egregiously, you know what I'm saying, God is grieved. When a nation is threatened, God is grieved. We could provide more examples. The point is this. Fasting identifies with God's perspective and grief in a sacred moment. Fasting enables us to identify with how God views a given event. Fasting empowers us to empathize with God. Fasting is about pathos, taking on the emotions of God in a given event. So for the, the, the thinking of the Old Testament, it's about God's far off, and he is or isn't doing something that we want him to do and will fast. Fasting in the New Testament is we, by the power of the Spirit, get to step in to the connection with the Trinity, with Godhead, and participate in God's emotions and experience that kind of closeness. So events and, and, and things that we want God to do certainly can motivate us to that. But, it, but answering those prayers is always secondary to the closeness of the Holy Spirit and participating in the emotions of God. Connecting to this uh, is another reason we fast, which is to create space in our life for what God is doing. Um, when we fast, we kick out all the props, all the things that we're leaning on for comfort. When we go without food or other comforts, other, other things that aren't necessarily bad, but we're relying on those to prop us up, we take those out by our own volition, and we say, come, Holy Spirit, would you come be near me? We don't earn God's presence. We're not working uh, in a sense of like God owes us this, but we know when we forego comfort and we we, uh, embrace our, our weakness, we rely on God's strength, and God answers that. It's like God can't, can't help himself but be near those who are weak and brokenhearted. In fasting, we enter into that voluntarily, Okay. We take our hands off the controls even of what God is doing. We dial back our lives. We forego that comfort. And we say, God, you take over. You take control. You guide me. You lead me. And so we open them up, open our hands up, take them off the control, and we open them up for what God wants to place in them in an act of surrender to him. And this ties back actually to this idea of wineskins and the warning to not get caught in being tied too tightly to the past or, or faulty expectations of what we're anticipating God doing. So in light of this, we might ask ourselves, what old things are we trying to mix with the new in our lives? What are we trying to hang on to that God is inviting us to let go of? It could be things like hurt and betrayal. There could be a surrendering finally. As the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder and says, would you like healing? But first you have to surrender that. You have to forgive. So it could be unforgiveness or bitterness even. It could be these unmet expectations of seasons past where we, we wanted God to show up and, and do something and we held the, him to it and he didn't do it exactly like we wanted to, him to. And so we finally, in a season of fasting, can let that go and say, you know, 
I want to see you from your perspective on how you were working and how you brought good out of that situation. It could be uh, letdown or failure. It could be a relationship that God is asking us to surrender or right-size where, where he's put on the throne of our hearts, of our lives, and, and the relationships have the proper perspective uh, in our lives. It could be old paradigms, old ways of thinking. Our theology could have shifted or is in the midst of shifting, and we, we enter into a season of fasting to say, I want your truth, I want your reality as you see it, God. It could be negative self-talk or self-hatred. That God is asking us to surrender, but we're too surrounded by our own comfort to let the voice of the Holy Spirit really penetrate our hearts. And a season of fasting is where we dial back and we actually listen for whatever God has to say to us. So, Jesus invites us, every one of us, that we can stop hiding and we can allow a pain and the hurt and whatever that is that we've been shoving down to come to the surface so he can bring healing to it. Fasting is an invitation to hit pause on our regularly scheduled programming to create space for encounter and allow the Spirit to bring us closer to God. So, in light of all that, I just want to, I'm going to get really practical because I feel like fasting is, fasting is an ancient practice and and Christianity isn't the only faith that practices this, but I believe we have a unique perspective on the way we're invited into it. We're not trying to earn closeness to God. We've already achieved it through the grace of Jesus, and we're just trying to quiet other voices and take out other comforts so that we could solely be focused on him. But in, in, in that sense, I think we need to the, just get insanely practical because it can be kind of this spiritual thing that only super spiritual people do, and really it's just an everyday thing for everyday people. Fasting is the most simple thing you can do because you don't do anything. I actually personally have a love-hate relationship with fasting. I love it because I've really sensed breakthrough moments and closeness with Jesus and just the sensitivity of the Spirit. So I love it, but I hate it because I am terrible at it. I'll set aside a day of, to fast, and I'll make it to like 4 in the afternoon. And then I, I just destroy a bag of Doritos. And then it's like, well, what was all that for? And, and the, just the grace of God. What I, I want you to understand how just utterly gracious and loving that God is. He's whispered to me before, that still counts. Like everything that I, that I didn't do, everything that I, I, you know, brunch, man, how hard is it to not do brunch when you're invited, right? Because that's the thing about fasting. As soon as you fast, someone's going to bring donuts to the office, right? You're, you're gonna, somebody's going to call you and go, hey, brunch is on me today. Let's go. You're like, oh, man, this is hard. This is hard, you know? So I love it, but I'm terrible at it. But it all counts because it's at the heart level. And I've, I've had those, you know, bag of Dorito moments, and then at 4.30, like, Dorito dust shame, you know. Okay, I'm hitting delete. I'm going the rest of the day. Let's go, Jesus. And it counts because he's that kind. Because I don't impress him with anything that I give up, but it's about my heart going, I, I just, I'm weak, and I'm broken, and I just want to be close to you, and these things are colliding all the time. But please, just accept this sacrifice, Right? Okay, so let's get insanely practical for a moment, okay? So these are a few methods of fasting. As, as we're inviting you into this practice of fasting, there are a number of ways that you can do it, and they all count. You just have to discern what's right and what's a good fit for you right now in the season that you're in. So you could do a partial fast. Uh, there are, there are um, moments in the Bible where people, uh, their heart reached out to God when they've uh, just 
like poor went food for a short period of time during the day. Think of like the Daniel fast where he, uh, he and his three friends didn't eat any uh, sweets or meats and they subsisted on veggies, fruits, and, and probably grain. And, and that was a great fit for them in the season and the time that they were in. Um, intermittent fasting is something that where you can skip a meal or two meals and um, fast throughout part of your day and give that time to God in prayer and in, and in um, maybe reading your Bible or, or whatever. You could do a complete fast where usually that's uh, water or liquids only. I, I do, um, when, when I've done a complete fast, I usually include coffee. Uh, I, I don't do many like non-coffee fasts. That's just me. Maybe God's inviting me into that. I don't know. I haven't heard that from him, so I'm not committing to that. But I'm just saying, you could do a complete fast and include some water, uh, some tea, some coffee, something like that. Some people think anything that fits through a straw counts. I'm not really of that mind, but you do you. And Hopefully, uh, God is, is, will bless that. Um, another one that I think is equally valid in the time and the age we're in is a digital fast. So this might be social media, streaming services, or gaming. Um, I, I think that, that so much of that has our attention throughout the day that foregoing some or all of those for a season uh, is, is something that where we can really give that time to God, and it really does make it an, an impact. Cal Newport, uh, in his book, Digital Minimalism, has this great quote. He did this big research project, interviewed a lot of people. This is a long quote, but I think it is so brilliant and fits so well for right now. He says this, Almost everyone I spoke to believed in the power of the Internet and recognized that it can and should be a force that improves their lives. They didn't necessarily want to give up on Google Maps or abandon Instagram. Can I get an amen? Does everybody... Like that, you don't want to just throw it off altogether. But they also felt as though their current relationship with technology was unsustainable. To the point that if something didn't change soon, they'd break too. Common term I heard in these conversations about modern digital life was exhaustion. It's not that any one app or website was particularly bad when considered in isolation. As many people clarified, the issue was the overall impact of having so many different shiny baubles pulling so insistently at their attention and manipulating their mood. Their problem with this frenzied activity is less about its details than the fact that it's increasingly beyond their control. Few want to spend so much time online, but these tools have a way of cultivating behavioral addictions. The urge to check Twitter or refresh Reddit becomes a nervous twitch that shatters uninterrupted time into shards too small to support the presence necessary for an intentional life. So taking time away from these de devices, how many of you know um, this, this app, these, these devices don't work for us. They, they work for companies in California that are meant to grab our attention and hang on to them all throughout the day. And if we live a life of this shattered concentration, how, in, how really intentionally can we give it to God? So a season of actually forgoing some or all of those things can bring our concentration back together and actually make us more perceptive and sensitive to the movement of the Spirit throughout the day. Okay? So in light of that, I will say some of us are probably going, but you don't know my life. I could not work. I could not have a social life. I couldn't, and I get it. That's okay. And, and some of us are even thinking, how am I going to fast? Like, I'm up at 6, I'm, I'm crashing at 9 p.m., like, I have no time, and I get it. I, I, I understand, and I hear about it all the time. So I, I just want to give you permission, again, to start where you're at, however you can. 
If you have a medical condition and you suspect that fasting wouldn't be a good fit for you, please consult your doctor. I am not a doctor. I'm, I, I, I'm a pastor, and that's not the same, although some people think, anyway, I won't get into that. Anyway, okay. Know that if you cannot fast food or even digital uh, media, know that you're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. It's just not the right season for you right now. But do what you can with what you have, right? That's always been, uh, that's continuing to be our invitation to welcome you in, to partner with the Spirit of God, to see how you can give your time and energy and attention back over to God regularly, okay? Know this, though, but for most, even moderately healthy Americans, fasting has not only proven to be safe, but actually can be quite healthy when engaged in a, in, a, in a proper way, okay? So I will say that. So I want to also say that today, uh, we, we've been in this rhythm of 21 days of prayer and fasting. We did one in August, and today is the first day of our 21 days of prayer and fasting as well. So that's why we're talking about fasting and inviting you into this practice as well. So what you can do is you can go online to tallgrassatthewell.church. There's information on there for ways that you can intersect with our intentional and purposeful uh, practice of fasting in the next 20 days. Um, there's some, some online prayer meetings, and there's actually even some uh, further resources and teachings if you're interested in knowing and going um, more deeply and into fasting. They're on, on there too. We're going to have a worship night, a prayer and worship night at the end of our fast. So we'll set aside some time as a community to, for some elongated uh, worship and, and prayer. And it's going to be really, really great. So I just invite you, however that the Holy Spirit is moving you to, to do that, to, to set aside the next three weeks and uh, uh, practice fasting. So here are, I'm going to invite the, the worship team on up as I wind down um, to, to help you enter into wherever you're at right now and whatever you're able to do. We've just got three suggestions, uh, beginning, baseline, and stretch practice so that you can find your place and find your way uh, in, in the way of fasting. Okay, So if you're a beginner at fasting, maybe for you it makes sense to abstain from one meal a day and or digital media for, for part or all of the next 21 days and use that as a time of prayer, okay? So it may be consecutive days. It may be a, a day of the week that you set aside and you go without some or all of those things. A baseline, what we would hope that everyone is able to get to and land on because we think that would build a, a really strong foundation of being sensitive to God's spirit and hearing his voice is choosing one day a week to abstain totally from food and or digital media uh, and, and giving that time to God in prayer and in and Bible study. And then a stretch goal. So you've maybe fasted, maybe you have a regular day of fasting, uh, you've done the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and this kind of might be quite a stretch for any of us, but if you're looking for that and God's inviting you into that, to abstain from food and or digital media throughout the next 21 days. Some of you may even feel called to go uh, without certain foods or drink or without all of like Facebook or Instagram for the entire 21 days. So what we want to say is start where you're at and we're never going to look down on each other for doing different sorts of fasts for different lengths of time. Amen? Amen. This is an invitation to draw near to God however he's inviting you. Why don't you stand with me and I'd love to pray. If you're at home, just find a place uh, you can maybe, you know, shut your screen down, not your viewing screen, but whatever other apps you've got up, and just uh, focus your attention on God, and let's fight the Holy Spirit in. I'd love, maybe if you guys could lay down a chord progression or something, just to spend a moment in God's presence, and we can ask him, 
how would you like me to respond and enter into the practice of fasting over the next couple of weeks? And it might be something you, you feel so energized by that it becomes a regular practice in your life. And that, that would be great as well. So let's pray. So God, we invite your presence to increase here in our midst, here wherever people are listening or, or viewing from as well. We thank you for this church community. God, our, our deepest longing is to be close to you. Our deepest hunger, God, is to hear your voice, to feel your presence, and to be close to you. So I pray, I pray in the midst of us that, that you would increase our hunger for you, God. Hunger really is a gift. We love because you loved us first. So increase our love, increase our hunger because you desire to be close to us first. I pray for a grace for fasting on this church community, God. However, you're inviting each of us in that we collectively would come together, set aside time to be close to you, God. Pray for grace, especially for first-time fasters, people that are, are just entering into this practice, or maybe just terrible like I am at it and, and want to give it a go but are, have self-doubt and, and struggle with guilt. I pray during this time for positive body image. God, that fasting wouldn't be some sort of punitive thing or punishment or uh, a way to be more acceptable to you. That God, it would just be a grace. So we pray for your hand on the next 21 days on our church, God, for an increase in hunger, an increase in your presence. And we ask for breakthrough. We ask for revelation, God. We ask that, that you would deposit more of your, your emotional well-being into us, God. I just get the sense, you just keep your eyes closed and head bowed. I just get the sense like God is just in wanting a yes. If all you have to give him is a weak yes. I just feel like God's saying he'll fill in the details. He just, he's just inviting you to take that first step to say, yes, God, I want to be close to you no matter how. So God, we, we today will give you our yes. And we ask that you would increase its strength as your grace is infused with it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.